and thanks for tuning in today. We're super excited to welcome you to The Debunk, the first of our Adobe Chats program. Uh, with the help of industry experts, we'll be using each episode to unpack some of the biggest myths in digital marketing and e-commerce. Today, we're tackling personalization and asking if it actually matters to consumers as much as your average industry blog would have us all believe. Let's turn it over to our panel who are busting the myth, customers always want more personalization. I'm Ben Davis, I'm editor of eConsultancy, and today we'll be tackling personalization and asking if it actually matters as much as the average industry blog would have us believe. You don't have to look far in the marketing world to find praise for personalization. One-to-one marketing is a big business. If you speak to most brands, they'll probably tell you they want to do more of it, but do customers value personalization as much as we think that they do? And is there a danger that we can go too far with marketing personalization that uh, can perhaps lead us down the wrong path? To help me answer some of those questions today, we've got three excellent guests. The Booms, Scott Morrison, Peter Weinberg from the B2B Institute, and Brian Green from Adobe. Scott is founder of, and in his own words, bringer of the boom, and he helps brands to unlock and unleash creative and commercial act. Peter works at the B2B Institute, where he's the global lead. Uh, it's a LinkedIn think tank that aims to research the future of B2B marketing. And Brian is the head of commercial sales in EMEA for Adobe, and he helps brands to turn every moment into unforgettable experiences. Um, so I think a good place to start, well, as for myself, I've spent seven years writing about marketing and digital, and personalization is probably one of those trends that has been foremost during that time. If you go back to the early 2010s, you may be just talking about tech companies like Amazon who were doing recommendations particularly well and driving lots of revenue. Fast forward to now, and there are many brands with big customer data sets who are doing quite advanced segmentation. Um, but maybe we can start by discussing how marketers approach personalization today. Um, Scott, if I start with you, you've worked with lots of CMOs. Um, how does your average marketing team go about personalization today and the value it brings? And where's that perception come from over the years? Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for that lovely intro, Ben. And, and I think the, the, the key thing to say first is that 90% of businesses say that they're doing this, right? And in reality, probably only 20% are really doing it at all. And there's this gap, not just in the delivery, but I think there's this dilemma that's been persistent, which is one man's, and I don't say man in the general sense, but one man's personalization is another man's intrusion. And brands that get it wrong end up with a real competitive disadvantage because it feels kind of creepy. And his, historically, I think, what's been happening is pers personalization has been quite rudimentary and quite down and dirty. It's been the, you know, the name at the beginning of an email. Um, you know, just, just kind of intrusive and painful. You know, when, when social media asks me to befriend people, I really don't want to befriend. It, it, it can be better, right? And the, the, the guiding principle for me, one of my guiding principles, is, is it applies to everything, but certainly applies to personalization, which is that people hate advertising, right? Because it's interrupted. Uh, so if you're going to interrupt the party, then bring champagne. And people aren't bringing enough champagne. Uh, and dig a little bit deeper. And actually, I think the crux of personalization, and what people, the holy grail people really want to get to is you've got to get intimacy. So intimacy for me trumps identity. And I think quite often we're still stuck at the identity phase where we kind of know the person and we talk about the right place and the right time. But it's, we just talk about ad placement or comms. 
And actually, if you were with a partner and all your partner did was said things that they would do for you all the time and never did anything for you proactively, you'd just be like, why am I in this relationship? And that's the same with brands. They'll tell us a lot, they'll talk a lot, especially around what's going on now. They'll say they're doing all these things, we're staying connected, doing this. And the reality is very, very different. They don't do the things that they say. So there's no bond and there's no trust. So personalization for me is much broader than comms. It's about doing things for your customers and consumers that they don't expect, using data to create impact for them with products, actions, and services, and not just creating incessant interrupted noise, which is what a lot of it can feel like. Yeah, I, I, I hear that word creepy used quite a lot around personalization. And you mentioned social media, and we can all remember when algorithms get tweaked and a Facebook or a Twitter decide what you want to see in your feed. Um, Peter, maybe I can ask you then, what do you think about how marketers are using personalization at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I uh, I may end up representing the extremist opinion here. I do have a fairly extreme <laughs> opinion on personalization. I think personalization is probably the single worst idea the marketing industry has ever come up with. And I'm really talking about Marcom personalization versus product personalization. Um, but I think the case against Marcom personalization, to me, can sort of be boiled down to three words, which is shouldn't couldn't and wouldn't. Uh, the shouldn't is really an ethical argument, which is if you really think about the amount of data collection required to understand customers on an individual level, it starts to get a little scary. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks any form of data collection is like totalitarianism, but I do think there's clearly a line and I think one-to-one -one personalization starts to step over that line. So that's the shouldn't, an ethics question, which I think is, you know, everyone can make up their own mind on. The couldn't is really whether or not it's actually possible. And I think if you think about how most personalization efforts are executed today, it tends to be powered by third-party data. And how good is third-party data? Uh, it's not good. It's really, really bad. There was a recent study from MIT and Group M that found 75% of the time, third-party data can't accurately identify your gender or your age. So good luck delivering personalized experiences with that kind of accuracy. Uh, so that's the couldn't. And then we get to the shouldn't, which was even if it's a good idea uh, or even if it's possible and even if it's ethical, I don't think it would work or I don't think it would actually deliver growth for marketers. Um, I think on the creative front, you couldn't name a single brand that's been built through personalized creative. The best creative is actually impersonalized and speaks to sort of universal human experiences. And the best media strategies get you broad reach against all category buyers. It's not through hyper-segmentation. So that's my uh, three-pronged case against personalization. I don't think it's necessarily ethical. I don't think it's possible. And I don't think it's a good idea, even if it was ethical or possible. Well, I uh, thank you for that, Peter. I don't want to disappear down a rabbit hole of sort of semantics or language, but I do sort of guess that I get what you're saying a lot of those points, but also this word personalization does encompass quite a lot of tactics used by marketers. I mean, if you're talking about e-commerce, you know, Amazon reportedly, if you go back to early 2010s, I think they built something like 30% of their revenue off their recommendation algorithm. This is a good point to come to Brian, actually, because 
we want a Martech expert to, to give his opinion on this. Um, I guess perhaps the question to follow up with, Brian, is what positive impact have you seen it have on customers and their relationships with brands? I think the first thing I would say uh, from a tech company standpoint, you know, we get technology companies, including ours at Adobe, talk about, you know, business to consumer, um, business to business. And I think for me, you know, where people are getting it right is go- is acknowledging the fact that it's business to human. But I always go back to when I was a child in terms of how Brian was engaging with, you know, a retail. And I use this little example. Um, I can still remember, which may surprise a few of you based on the um, hair dye, that um, I used to go to my local butcher with my mum and I could walk in that butcher and that butcher, because of our interaction as a family with that butcher over years, knew that my favourite treat at the weekend was a pork and apple sausage. I know it sounds crazy, but that was personalised content and Ray the butcher knew my name and would engage with me to the extent then probably a few decades later, I can still recall that personalized story to you now online, as we are doing right now. And wouldn't it be great if we can engage in that same way and demonstrate those great personal business to human relationships digitally so we can you know, build those branded trust relationships? I do think it opens up a number of issues that we do need to address. Many of those issues have been represented already. But I think there are values for the consumer, value for the MarTech professional, and value for an e-commerce merchant in getting this right. I, I'm, I'm probably almost opposed, in my opinion, on personalization when we get it right to my colleague around the t- that we j- who just spoke, and I think it's have, have a great value in demonstrating and building a brand, because I would argue to that, to some extent now, your digital experience is portraying your brand in a way that none of us would have guessed in February of 2020. Yeah, I I, I agree that I mean, if you look at a campaign like Spotify Wrapped, you know that that may be something that is heavily data driven, but has massively helped to build a brand simply by presenting what you probably could refer to as product usage data back to the the customer. Um, and I would say that if you look at the moment, um, you know, we've got retailers, say in fashion, who have loads of stock at the moment that they, they want to shift. They're not seeing customers face to face. And so they have to email them and think about which products they may want to buy. So I do think there are some, I mean, personalization can be sort of, how do I put this, disappointingly pragmatic you know, in, in its uses, which I think is worthwhile bearing in mind. Um but I think, yeah, maybe we should chat about what happens when personalization goes too far uh, one way. I mean, perhaps we'll go back to you, Scott, in the brands you've worked with or just in your personal experience. Have you seen customers turned off? I know you spoke about comms. Have you seen customers turned off by personalized comms or over-personalized experiences? Well, well, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, is it's not necessarily the, the actual – the personalization itself, it's what sits around it because it's the, I think the classic thing that we're talking about here isn't just the execution, it's the going in point, it's the mindset of a marketer stroke brand who is looking at personalization as creating some kind of impact for their uh, people. I mean, one of the interesting things I just wanted to pick up on that last point was personalization is, in some mindsets, we think of personalization as it's the thing that everyone needs actually. And we think about it in this kind of weird currency over here, but actually, 
from a consumer standpoint, the currency, I think, is about seamlessness. And, 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 and instead of us thinking about personalization as a way of us getting closer and building trust, and actually, the easiest way to build trust right now with consumers, I talk about this thing called Uber's children, where we're all Uber's children, because you know, if we can order a taxi from here to take us wherever we want to go, and it, it's, it's totally seamless, then why can't everything in our life be like that? So when we think about personalization and personalized experiences, it's got to be about how do I make my consumer's life seamless? And the big mistakes that I see are when people think they're doing that and they really don't. Because if it creates friction, your brand is, is doing the antithesis of the Uber's children philosophy, which is seamlessness. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and the context is so important. I think mentioning Uber is... Is, resonates with me because I was reading uh, the e-consultancy founder Ashley Friedlein wrote a piece at the start of this year, Trends for the Year, and when he mentioned personalization, his his take on it was that if, if you pass your Uber app to somebody on your phone, is you're logged in, but they will have the same seamless experience that you do when they're using it. And in effect, Uber doesn't use that personal data that it has on you to, to make that experience seamless. Um, so obviously, in that situation, it's it's sort of anonymous. Um, experience that you're having with it. Um, and I, I think when you mentioned day cards as well, Bloom and Wild, I think, are the brand that have allowed customers to opt out of Mother's Day and Father's Day messages. Yeah. Precisely that example of zero-party data. What do you, what, how can you customize our service to get the most from it? Um, exactly. So I think context, yeah, massively important. Peter, can I ask you about, I know you're from the world of B2B. Uh, I won't pigeonhole you and ask you to come up with a B2B example, but have you got things on personalization gone wrong? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of interesting stuff has been said. I think that it's important to distinguish between Marcom personalization and product personalization. I think that customers absolutely expect personalization when it comes to the customer experience and the product. You know, when you open up your uh, airline app, you expect it to show you your flight and not someone else's flight. When you go into Netflix, you expect it to show you shows that you like, not shows that other people like. Um, and I think that's a reasonable expectation that's now been set and companies have to deliver on it. From a Marcom perspective, again, when it comes to personalizing ads, I mean, even just hearing what Brian and Scott have been saying, it occurs to me just how hard that would actually be to do, like to know when someone's dad died, to know, you know, what your favorite snack is. Like it's extremely demanding on the marketing side. And I think it's just an open question as to whether or not it's possible. I haven't seen it done right. You know, the big blockbuster movies are based on these broad universal themes. Like Disney isn't making movies for Peter in New York. They're making movies about superheroes that can play in every market in the world. So there's also a lot of benefit to impersonalization from a communication standpoint in that you can reach a lot of customers very efficiently, which is generally the path to growth. So from a product perspective, again, I think personalization makes sense. From a Marcom perspective, I think it's a very shaky case. Yeah, you know, I think we've raised some interesting points about, you know, the different types of personalization and you know I, I, I know I agree you know personalization can get it it can be done bad you know like I said I've got a personal example right now I've got a follow-up email personally dear Brian can you give me a review of the goods that you just procured 
And my frustration when I saw that email personally, and it arrived a couple of days ago, was at the same time I'm complaining to that retailer because the goods haven't arrived. So that you know that disconnected journey. I do agree there are think you know a number of challenges. There's other personalization examples which I get, you know, which really, really benefits Brian. And, you know, whether they are product personalization, which is linked to Marcom. But, you know, as we've gone into lockdown, you know, I found myself doing online shopping for the family, which is something that I've not done. We've done, we've all experienced online queues even. And the fact that, um, you know, the retailers that I'm involved with absolutely knows the contents of my fridge, which is something quite, and I have to be very open and, and thank my family because they had a far better idea of what that was than me, um, was great. But also, so I started placing some orders in this new world that we're in around COVID-19 for placing some goods. And then, the you know, that was done really well because I got, you know, reminders the following day of things that I would have normally ordered or, you know, suggestions that I've missed because they're out of stock, which were absolutely relevant in the current world times. So I think if personalization is done well and all of that connected journey is in- inclusive, I think, you know, we made a point a moment ago that when we don't include the whole journey and, you know, we leave bits out, you know, l- you know, the example of the Father's Day card, yeah, I definitely agree. That was really complex. Going back to... You know, my example of the pork and apple sausage, I think if the brand has earned my trust and they are very open with me in terms of what they're using with that data, I absolutely probably would share enough information with me. So when I click sausage on the e-commerce website of my choice, pork and apple would be the default because that has some value to me. And as long as they are open at what they're doing with my data, I would share it. And we are seeing customers and merchants offering that, and that is helping the merchant and is clearly averaging helping the consumer based upon their customer retention and loyalty rates that we're seeing when we've been surveying those customers. Yeah, I, I agree. And touching on touching on the concept of usefulness again, um, to give an example, um, I spoke to CMO at Money Supermarket last year and, and they have this credit monitor where you can you can type in some details and you'll be given tips on how to improve your credit rating. I think eventually you'll have products tailored to you based on, um, based on your circumstances and it will alert you when you want to change services, you know, whether it's finding another energy provider or whatever. Um, and... The stats on that he gave me at the time, I'm going to read them off my notes here. Um, I think they saw, so he said, hey, we've got engagement click for increased from 20% to 39% over a year. CRM revenue is up 30%. And yeah, I mean, there are, obviously they had marketing investment at the same time, big brand campaign. Um, they showed that credit monitors, customers had six times the engagement rate of people who didn't use the tool on the website. So um and obviously we may not think about that as personalization we can just think of it as a tool as we're using it but that data has to be used in a smart way to help the customers yeah and i think you know it it becomes to a situation where you know the currency of personalization becomes trust and then you know in order to maintain the the trust of your consumers whether they're b2b or b2c you know you have to be very transparent with what you're doing with their data and give them the ability to, you know, to be involved in those decisions. I think if you do that well, then, um, you know, the value of the personalization to the consumer is clear, but also, you know, you can, you can build, 
you know, in electronic trust relationship using credit is a great example. I always find it fascinating that historically, culturally, a lot of people would trust banks um, with data uh, around us ourselves. And, you know, it's cultural in terms of how we establish a trust relationship with these brands. And it's going to, you know, to the point that was made earlier, you know, trust is something that we, you know, you, I think is a currency we have to, have to consider and leverage and, you know, all of the aspects around that one, privacy and security and, you know, being very transparent. And if we get those right and demonstrate value, I think these personalization problems that we're all encountering in order to do that great job um, is is achievable. But, um, you know, I, I definitely think trust is a, is a key element of that. I, I, I just yeah, like I to we, jump in on that, on that bit because I, I, I agree that trust is, I think, I don't know, you'd probably call it an end-end benefit. I don't know. Maybe marketers would say that these days. <clears throat> but I, I still absolutely, I mean, the, the example that you just gave then, Ben, I, I don't think that anyone's inherently going, I really trust uh, Compare the Market uh, any more than I trust, you know, any of the other brands that do that sort of thing. Market, yeah. I think I think it's something that goes, that, that I think seamlessness is absolutely, I, I think people are happy to trade their data, uh, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes very wittingly, to have, uh, to save themselves an extra hour or to save themselves an extra 200 quid. And uh, and ultimately, somewhere on the line, they'll make a decision whether they trust a brand or not because I think there's a lot more promiscuity now on digital. You know, I think about brands that grow exponentially that were officially niche, like Gymshark is now a billion dollar brand, right? And uh, it, it works with a particularly niche, okay, a, a big niche, but where the big markets left, they went in. But I, I'm not sure that people trusted the brand of me. I just think people went, wow, you know, that looks cool. I look cool. They they serve me a product that, look, that looks like what I want. They talk to me how I want. They Their pricing's great. And people very, very quickly saw that as a brand that just delivered incredible value, personalized, sort of seamless, where they didn't have to go to the shop and, and hear from Nike. They got fitness plans. They got all this stuff from this brand. So, you know, it's this thing about... When you create the brand, it's everything. It's the product, the pricing, the process. The, every single element has to create a feeling of this brand is something for me. There's an intimacy to this brand. It's helping my life just feel more seamless. It's helping me get fit. It's helping me, eat, I don't know, whatever it might be. And then I think trust actually comes as a result of that, as opposed to us as, as brands thinking, well, we, we need to gain people's trust up front. And then we spend a lot of time doing that kind of dance around trust. I think people are just quite happy to get their hands dirty a bit more and, and see what the brand actually does for them. And if you do the right thing, then they go, yeah, cool, I'm in. Um, and if not, then they just walk off to the next brand that will. We were discussing where personalization can go wrong, where it can go right. And now we want to tackle or find where that line is between the two. So I wanted to come to you first, Brian, and ask, sure. uh, well, quite bluntly, what is the secret to success? I think, um, ironically, we touched on it a little bit just before we broke. Um, and I think, you know, one of our colleagues around the table here nailed it. That one of the best representations of personalization um, that I see frequently with those people that get it right are those that the customers, you know, don't necessarily notice. I think the comment, and I'm going to quote, quote um, these are my learned guests that are with us, you know, the ones that are seamless, the ones that offer value, context, and you know, it makes the interaction very straightforward. They're the ones that are the best. And you do that well, 
then that is going to establish the trust that's going to you know, make the value more incrementally stronger for the consumer. So the best representation of personalizations are the ones that are seamless in my mind. And Scott, what about you? I mean, obviously some of these tactics are tied to a KPI at the end of the day. And a lot of the times we receive marketing where we know that it might be improving sales on aggregate. How do you get that right? Because obviously we want to improve sales. Um, is that a long-term view you have to take? Well, I think you have to look at a variety of KPIs, but I think you, you have to hone in on really what is the one metric that matters. That's what I always talk about when I talk to my businesses. Uh, and what is that metric that's driving uh, that this part of the business that you can help drive with something like personalization? Uh, I think what's interesting is uh, the, the thing that I often think about with businesses is you, businesses create all these assets and these incredible things. And they sometimes forget to join the dots up in new and interesting ways. And it's only when you join the dots up in new and interesting ways can you create other value that you can then repurpose back to the business. So you've got a sunk cost. You repurpose that, join the dots in new ways. You create new value, which then can impact somewhere along, you know, either the top line or bottom line, whatever the uh, whatever the, the impact it has. And, and I think one of the great examples for that, for me at the moment, is is what Sky are doing with the Sky VIP program. So uh, again, it's they've got all these wonderful products and uh, assets. You know, they've got football, they've got movies, they've got all these different things. And what they've said is, well, actually, we're not just in the business of showing this stuff, because that's massively competitive right now with Netflix and everybody else. We're actually in the business of access. So, okay, in one level, you can access the films, the sport, and all that sort of thing through our TV portal, but we're going to give you something else based on your interests and what you love and what you like, and whatever else. We'll give you access to the behind the scenes. We'll give you access to the actors or the actresses, whatever it is that you that you are, are, are most wanting to have access to. And so they've created Sky VIP. And I think it's a, a really lovely idea. I mean, it's not unique, it's not brand new, but it's a classic example of taking assets that you already have, they're already sunk cost, creating some added value back to the consumer, and then saying, we're doing something, and then doing it, and then delighting your consumer, making them feel an intimacy and a proximity and a closeness to the brand that they won't get from uh, their other competitors, which gives them a competitive advantage. Yeah, good example. Peter, what about you? Have you got an example for us about companies you think of nailed personalization? I know you're no, product centric. I'll, I'll stick with the uh, I'll stick with the extremist opinion. I think the best approach to personalization is to not do any personalization. I think we've been building brands for 200 years the old-fashioned way through broad segmentation and reaching all category buyers. It's been perfectly fine. I think we could talk about some of the benefits of personalization, but it's also just worth thinking about the costs of developing a million unique experiences for a million different customers instead of a one-size-fits-most approach. And I hear a lot of articles about the benefits, and the, but not a lot about the costs. And I think we also need to distinguish between what is probable and what is possible. So there might be isolated examples here and there of a few companies that have gotten personalization right. But realistically, do most marketing organizations in the world have the resources, the data, the knowledge to deliver personalized experiences? And I would say, no, they don't, and they don't need to. And the old approach to marketing worked, and we should stick with the old approach to marketing. Well, I, I would, uh, I certainly agree with you on what what we talk about as one-to-one -one marketing. I know that that is something very difficult to achieve, and you talk about you know millions of versions of creative. I think there aren't many. I mean, you could look at um, I don't know, uh, 
Chinese tech firms that are doing massive versioning of banner ads on e-commerce platforms and things. But I, I, I would argue that you go back to old catalog businesses, loyalty schemes, you get sent coupons that may be relevant to you in some sense. I mean, some of them may be ones that are placed there because they want you to buy certain products. But I, I think some form, you know, if you look at an e-commerce website and choose to change what is merchandised on the front page, dependent on someone's purchase behavior, I don't think that is, to be honest, anything particularly new. Uh, but I, I, I see where you're coming from in terms of there's a red herring here where we can't all create 7 billion versions of a TV advert. And when you log on to YouTube, you see the one that has your name and face as the lead character, etc. So I, I, I hope that's well, a, uh, a sympathetic another question, another question to ask is who owns the customer experience in an organization? And at least in B2B, it's almost never the marketing department. I think sales and product have a lot more ownership over the customer experience than the marketing department, at least in B2B. So, you know, I just try to make sure my clients are set up for success and I don't want them to take on responsibilities that I don't think they can deliver on. And I think when it comes to the customer experience in B2B, I'd let the sales department deliver personalized experiences by going into meetings and knowing the names of their clients uh, I wouldn't take that on from a marketing standpoint, personally. I think we've covered the entirety of the spectrum there. Um, and we, we've seen that personalization in all its forms can be powerful, but if we use it correctly um, to make engaging experiences and to improve relationships rather than just bombarding customers with more and more messages, uh, it's good that we can be critical about industry buzz like this and discuss <laughs> different opinions about personalization. Um, but yes, it's one part of a marketing strategy. And I think we probably all agree that it is a strategic part of, of marketing and not something that's just a tactic to be to be bolted on. So that's a rambling way of me to say thank you very much to all of our guests, um, Scott, Peter and Brian. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with me today. It's been great to get your input on this topic. And thanks for everybody at home who's joined us. Hope you found it useful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Debunk and a massive thanks to all of our guests and to yourselves for tuning in. If you'd like to keep the conversation going or if you want to read more of our exclusive content, head to the Adobe Chats page. While you're there, you can also catch the next episode of The Debunk. See you soon.